0: Tonight's reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah, the other poor, When you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people Every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. The word of the Lord.
1: Sometimes it seems just wrong in terms of burning fossil fuel and, I don't know, just generally inflicting our pasty white presidents as citizens of the empire on anybody else. But I like to take my kids out of this country once in a while. To places that are less sanitized, orderly, less plastic than the United States of America. So we went to this Mexican fishing, hippie, surfer place. And it wasn't like being in the empire. There were no squares, man. Really, no squares. Except the one in the center of town where public space was like public space, like thriving, dancing, fruit-selling space, coconuts, mangoes, crazy fruit, messy. A dad on his trombone and his little boy on the snare drum and young Mexican men street dancing, head spinning, rap in one corner, the little boy and his dad in the other corner. Little clouds of aromatic smoke floating up once in a while. Here in our country, we had to have a movement to occupy public space. There are other places where that's like where life happens. And it was in the mountains, so even the roads weren't straight. Olivia did trip on the uneven pavement, and her knee did bleed, but the guy at the taco stand at the bottom of the hill brought us Band-Aids and disinfectant. Yeah, you couldn't flush your toilet paper down the toilet or drink the water. But I felt happy to give up regulation curbs, standardized sterility, for a little unregulated fertility. Back in US customs, everything's clean and orderly. There's a sign that welcomes visitors and promises a country with world-class law enforcement. I don't know why at the time that struck me as more of a threat than a promise. We are back on the grid, our streets are straight, our pavement is flat, I can't believe how much space from the airport to my house is occupied by parking lots. We passed ten Caribou coffees that look exactly the same, six Chipotles, four Walmarts, twenty Super Americas, and A guy drove around in this truck with a loudspeaker selling petrol, playing this little jingle which I could probably sing, I heard it so many times. Annoying? I don't know, I thought it was all part of this beautiful, thriving cacophony. Roosters crowing, dogs barking, jungles growing. For some reason on the way home, it's even bugging me that the lines painted on the pavement are so perfectly straight. And then I think, it's no wonder that there's a national obsession with zombies these days. It's what threatens us in the empire. The dead, deadness, lifelessness, eating our brains. That might be a little dramatic. (laughs) But I think it's true and not very exaggerated to say that the empire breeds death and deathiness and semi-conscious zombie-like conformity. Some sort of, I don't know, fake life generated by corporate sponsors. But anyway, the pharaoh of Egypt was scared of the fruitful multiplying. Scared of the unregulated fertility. Power can be so paranoid. Have you noticed that? Man, it bugs me. But so the pharaoh goes off on a little paranoid rant. There are too many of these Hebrew people. and. And what if they keep multiplying, and what if there's a war, say? Say, like, what if there's a war, and what if they join our enemies and fight us, and they escape? And so in his fear, he makes them slaves. Slaves to the empire. So they won't have a moment to reflect on dissent. So he set up taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They were forced to make the empire's bricks, squares forced to build its buildings and it made their lives bitter. The pharaoh issues an edict, a Jezira, it's called in Hebrew. What it is is he imposes this inescapable grid, this grid that says this is how it is and this is how it will be. You make bricks, you serve the empire. You are not people with multiplicitous possibility. You work for the system. You live your life in the system. You make the system. You are the system. You work, you buy, you die. And maybe watch a little TV. Or possibly attend a sporting event. The rabbinic interpretations of the book of Exodus talk about the Jazeera mind. It's this sort of mind that has been conformed to this edict, sort of a zombie-like mind, or maybe a mind half-eaten by zombies, a mind that's dead to any sort of really imaginative possibility. They also talk about the Egyptian disease, a paralyzing sort of inertia, the Jazeera mind. It's not something confined to the historical past written about in the Bible, but it's something that is a perpetual threat to redemption. It can get you anywhere, anytime, within the empire's reach. The Israelites are so damaged by this disease that the Midrash has Moses wondering if they're even fit any longer for redemption. He wonders if they're actually only fit anymore for slavery. Drones of empire struck forever in the Jazeera mine. And this comes up over and over again in the book of Exodus. Moses leads the people out of Egypt. They actually escape. But then they keep questioning over and over again whether they even should have. They're barely across the Red Sea when they complain to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to the wilderness to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. They don't like the wilderness, the wild. They complain that the food was a lot better in slavery. And they repeatedly long to go back to Egypt. And sit by their pots of meat. I have to admit that it gets a little aggravating to read. I mean, I know that wandering in the wilderness can be uncomfortable, but really? To prefer to be slaves of the empire? I think the Egyptian disease is really quite common, quite widespread. The inertia the incapacity to imagine a different way. There are some movements from time to time, but they don't gain much momentum. Everything sinks so quickly back into the power system. Power? People get it. People believe in it. Alternatives to power? Not so much. It doesn't seem quite fair to keep calling it the Egyptian disease. I mean, if anybody's seen movements lately, rebellion, It's the empire disease. It's the disease of believing that this is how it is and this is how it will be. It erodes the imaginative capacities you serve the system. It's the only reality. Power is truth. Liberation is unimaginable. There is no hope for anything else. The Egyptian disease is evident in the state of the Pharaoh's heart. It is hard. It's described over and over that way. This is a significant symptom of the Egyptian disease. A hard heart, a rigidity, incapable of softening. Vulnerability is intolerable. It's dark, and it's sad, and it's scary, and it's hopeless. The Midrashic accounts actually claim the totalitarian grip was so pervasive that no slave ever escaped from Egypt. Once you're in, you never get out. Without, I love these stories, the midwives. Out of the desperate, hopeless landscape, here they come. Something new needs to be born. Step aside, gentlemen, bring in the ladies. So the book of Exodus starts out recounting the names of the sons of Jacob, the Israelite men, the patriarchs who have all died. Then it sort of abruptly stops naming anyone, but rather recounts this multiplying people, but it's sort of an unnamed people. And you can read this multiplying as good, fruitful, but actually one of the words for the multiplying here is not very complementary. It's a word that's linked to a reptilian-like or insect-like reproduction. Not really birthing, but something more like spawning. And there's a lot of midrashic speculation about that word. Some rabbis say it's as if this generation had lost the distinctiveness of the people of God. They lost their purpose, their meaning, Sephorno, a 16th-century Jewish commentator, says that people became merely, I'm quoting, masses of unindividuated, insect-like conformists, whose whole effort was to assimilate to the surroundings of empire, and whose unconscious drive was for lemming-like compliance. After the 70 original immigrants had died, he says, the Israelites inclined toward the ways of reptiles. That all seems a little bit harsh to me, but I like it as a setup for what emerges. The first people to be named again among the masses are not more patriarchs, not Jacob or John or George or Bob, Shipra and Pua, the dissident midwives. Their names, according to the Midrash, replicate the sounds of women in labor. What can possibly redeem these people, enlarge the possibility, reinvigorate the conformist, reptilian, Jazeera, empire, male mind? What can mobilize a contradictory vision to power's totalitarian edicts? Free the people from their service to mortar and bricks? Women. I mean, I'm really not making this story up. There were women in Genesis, named mostly in relationship with men, and there will be some more women in the Bible, of course, but mostly hereafter there will be narratives of men. Yet here at this most critical juncture, the exodus, the movement of the people, women drive the events. So the bitter, hard service in mortar and bricks in itself, much to the pharaoh's chagrin, didn't keep the Israelites from reproducing. So he goes to talk to the midwives, and he commands the midwives to start killing babies. He says that when you go to help a woman in labor, notice whether it's a boy or a girl, and if it's a boy, kill it. But they don't do it. The king of Egypt commands them to do that, but they let the children live. They disobey the Pharaoh's edict. These women break the reptilian spell of insect-like conformity. And thus here begins the counter-narrative, exodus, the movement of the people. Of course, the king of Egypt's not happy, and he comes back to the midwives, and he demands, Why have you let the children live? But they don't strike me as being very cowed by the power. They don't seem scared. The power doesn't seem to be all that defining for them. Maybe because they spend their time delivering babies. Maybe because their focus has never been bricks. They are not defined by rigidity. Hardness is not like a thing for them. They're intimate with another story. Another power that is almost the opposite of big, hard bricks. Anyway, the midwives say to the pharaoh, and this seems really kind of funny to me, they say to the pharaoh that they failed to kill the babies because the Hebrew mothers, unlike Egyptian women, are just so vigorous. That they give birth to their babies so fast that the midwives can't even get to them, so how could they kill them? I mean, just imagine that picture. Midwives running, babies popping. It's maybe a little bit of an outrageous story. But the midwives aren't afraid to venture it, to put it out there. The women are fruitful. They defy the Egyptian edict with their bodies and their counter-narrative. They give birth. They create and nurture life. And in some ways, in the simplest sense, that is the meaning of redemption. Flourishing life. Death undone. That is the counter-narrative. So, yeah, the dissident midwives don't obey the pharaoh. They tell a story that's probably not entirely true in terms of objective reality. I mean, if the Hebrew woman really gave birth so fast that the midwives could never get there in time to help them, then presumably there wouldn't be Hebrew midwives. But they tell the Pharaoh that the women are too vigorous for his edict to hold any sway. I like that, the women are too vigorous. I also like this translation in the Hebrew. It is simply, these women are alive. The midwife's story creates an alternative world, a world where life and birth happen irrepressibly. I love that. And I can't believe this. If you look back over Christian commentary on these texts, you'll find first Augustine and then a lot of medieval men, Aquinas, Peter Martyr, Gregory so-and-so, focusing all their attention on the fact that the midwives lied. And they use this story to frame these treatises on lying. They examine whether lying is ever permissible. They conclude no, across the board. The midwives' actions in lying were reprehensible and surely kept them from their proper reward of eternal life in heaven. And the same fixation on the problem of the lying midwives continues in Christian exegesis. Through the Reformation, through the post-Reformation, Calvin argues that they were surely displeasing to God. Can you even believe it? Power can be so paranoid, so scared of the fruitful multiplying, so scared of the unregulated fertility. Talk about rigidity. Talk about being inflicted by the Egyptian disease. On the other hand, Rashi, a rabbinic commentator from the 11th century, imagines that the women all but disappear from the narrative after this because they were actually not at all involved in the sins of the wilderness. Rassi thinks that the women didn't participate in the making of the golden calf. They didn't participate when everyone was complaining about the wilderness. They never wanted to return to Egypt. They didn't long with the men to go back into slavery and sit by their pots of meat. This is no 20th century feminist reading. It's some old French, I'm assuming, unorthodox Jew. Rashi says, in that generation, women would repair what men tore down. I don't mind reading it that way. I think we need some dissident midwives to get the exodus underway, some movement. As we begin this Holy Week, we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I think that might be where we live. Just don't let the zombies eat you. There's life to come.